Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope and pray you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to look this morning to verses 5 through uh, verses 25. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through verse 25. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us to be our live stream each and every week. We got hundreds of folks who join us uh, via our live stream. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Also, Lenexa Baptist Church, right there in the main sanctuary, um, we want to welcome you and also uh, the venue service over at Lenexa Baptist. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Well, we come to Luke chapter 1, um, and the, the, really the course of this month, we stepped away from 1 Samuel in order to look into uh, Luke's gospel and to uh, focus our attention this Christmas season on the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ, there, there's no way we can possibly plunge the depths of this truth. Uh, I've been studying this again, uh, reading various passages as we pray in and prepare for our Christmas services and Christmas Eve and all the things that surround that. And I just stood in awe of God and his love for us in coming to us. And it really, the, the incarnation of Christ and Christmas, it, it really meets, I, I believe, the deepest longing of every person's heart. The, the, the deepest longing of every person's heart is to know that somebody loves you. I mean, that, that's the deepest longing of every individual's heart. Know that somebody loves you. And the message of Christmas, the message of Christianity is that somebody really big loves you, that God loves you. And he did something for you. He saw you in your humble estate. He saw you in the brokenness of your sin. And he sent his son Jesus to come, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect sinless life, to die on a cross for your sins on a rescue mission to save you uh, from sin, Satan, and death. And this is the promise of God throughout the Old Testament that God would come. And in fact, in Genesis 3.15, God promised right after the fall of man that he would send somebody Christ, he would crush Satan, he'd defeat sin, Satan, and death, he'd make things right. And all the Old Testament is kind of an anticipation of who will this person be. All the Old Testament is kind of narrowing the focus, pointing us to one individual. The Old Testament, it's been said, creates a door frame through which only Christ can enter. The law and the prophets create a crosshairs that point us to one individual, Jesus Christ. The word of God, God wants us to be certain. God wants us to be certain about who Christ is, who the Messiah is. Because quite frankly, listen, if we can't have certainty on this issue, then Christmas is nothing but a bunch of sentimentalism and, and gifts and turkey. But, but we can have certainty that Christ is the Messiah and Christ has come for us. And, and all the prophecies concerning the, the Messiah in the Old Testament really get specific. But the final word of God in the book of Malachi, the final word of God, the, the final prophecy concerning Messiah, before God signs off in the Old Testament, he gives one final prophecy concerning the Messiah. And there in, in Malachi's prophecy, he tells us that before Christ comes, there'll be a forerunner. There'll be somebody who come, uh, who, who makes the way ready, kind of like a bailiff in a, in a, in a courtroom uh, says, all rise, get ready, because the judge is coming in. That this forerunner will make the way ready for the coming Messiah, the, the coming of Christ. So, so listen, if anybody shows up claiming to be Messiah, they got to check a lot of boxes of, that the Old Testament promised. And the final one is that there'd be a forerunner. And Luke, Luke is... 
in his gospel, all the gospel writers talk about John the Baptist because he's the forerunner. You got to talk about him. But Luke's gospel records him first. Why? Because Luke is a historian. He's wanting to, to give us accuracy to Theophilus and ultimately to us. You see it in the first four verses there of Luke's gospel that we would have certainty that this is the Christ. So who's the forerunner? Here he is. And he prepares the way for the coming of Christ. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this passage. Father, we thank you for your word that points to us in specific nature as to who Christ is. He is the Messiah. Lord, I pray this morning that you would uh, calm our hearts. I don't, I don't know the situation of every person watching via our live stream or in this room, but God, you do. You, you know them. By name, you made them, you knew them before the foundation of the world, and I I believe with all my heart that you have a word for for them today from your word. And so, Lord, don't let me get in the way. Um, With all my inadequacies and all of my incompetency, I pray, Lord, that you would speak by means of your word. In so many ways, we bring five loaves and two fishes, but God, I pray that by your word and by your spirit, you, you do more than we ever thought possible, that you would speak into all of our hearts, whether we know you, and we need encouragement or challenge this morning, or, or maybe there's some that are here today or watching online that they don't know you. And God, I pray, by means of your spirit and your word, you'd peel back the blinders of their eyes and they would see the beauty of Christ who came and lived and died for them and for their salvation. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Now in the days of... Herod, king of Judea, there was a great priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Uh, This story could not uh, begin in a more bleak or dark way. Christ is going to come. uh, The forerunner is going to arrive at at the worst of times. The nation of Israel is captive uh, to the Romans. They pay taxes to a pagan nation to rule over them. And the Romans have appointed a man named Herod to be king or to rule over uh, the nation. Herod is an Edomite. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. They're the express enemies of God. And so here, uh, the Romans, who are a pagan nation, they pay taxes to them to rule over them, and they've appointed an Edomite to be their king. Herod was known as Herod the Great. There's a lot of Herods if you study history, even in Scripture. But this is Herod the Great, and he was great as a builder and great as a politician, but he was a morally bankrupt individual, incredibly corrupt. Um, He uh, was a a, um, maniacal, egotistical Maniac. This was a guy who was constantly living in fear of somebody challenging his authority, uh, so much so that he ended up killing his wife, he killed his mother-in-law, he killed two of his children, uh, two of his boys, for fear that they might challenge his authority. It was said of King Herod that uh, it was safer to be one of his pigs than to be one of his own sons. This guy's morally bankrupt in every way one of their own enemies, and now he's ruling over them. So politically, they are captive. Militaristically, they are weak. Economically, they are broke. Religiously, the voice of the prophets have gone silent. So there's been no prophetic word of God for over 400 years. In fact, there's a lot of similarities to the context of of John the Baptist and Jesus to the context that we saw in 1 Samuel and the coming of Samuel in a nation that, that the word of God was rare 
It's a spiritually dark time, incredibly bleak, and you're kind of left to wonder, is there anybody out there that's still clinging to the hope of Christ? So the situation is so dark and so bleak, you're left to wonder, is there anybody out there that still holds to the hope of Messiah? Is there anybody out there still walking in faithfulness? And so right after telling us that the situation is incredibly bleak, we're introduced to a couple, an old couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And the beauty of this is, as soon as you're introduced to them, Zacharias, his name means God remembers. And Elizabeth's name means God's covenant. And you put this couple together and their names combined together mean God remembers his covenant. And see, right here at the beginning, the, the, the bleakness and the darkness of the situation, we're reminded that the great hope of this nation is not in a military. The great hope of this nation was not some politician. The great hope of this nation was that God would remember his promise to send a savior. And right off the bat, God is shining a bright light of hope in the midst of a very dark circumstance. I kind of picture this in my mind. I just picture this city incredible, in, in incredible darkness, everything bleak. And yet over in the corner of the city, there's this little cottage, like a warm fire aglow, and they got the word of God out, and they're praying together as a couple, and they're faithful, and they're trusting that God has not forgotten his people, and that God would remember his promise. And boy, is this not an encouragement to us in the midst of the day in which we live. In a similar way, can we not also say that the world in which we live is an incredibly dark place? It'd be politically dark, in every way dark. Uh, religiously, we see so much compromise, just like in, in, in this day, compromise religiously and spiritually and and bleakness economically, and every time we turn around, it's more bad news. And the reminder to us is that God is still at work. Listen to me today. <laughs> Regardless of how dark the situation might seem, God is still at work. And he's at work in, a, in, a, in an old couple who's just clinging to the promise, clinging to the hope that God will remember. Look at verse 6. It says they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Um, they were righteous in the sight of God, not in the sight of men, because the righteousness inside of men can be, uh, uh, can be imitated. It can, it can just be physical. It can just be external. But righteousness in the sight of God, this is a, a completely different matter altogether. Because scripture makes plain to us, doesn't matter if you're talking Old Testament and New Testament, the only way to be declared righteous in the sight of God is one prerequisite. There's only one way for any of us to be declared righteous in the sight of God. We certainly can't earn it. None of us can earn the righteousness of God. This is not to say that this was a perfect couple. They never sinned. They're just righteous. No, they've been declared righteous in the sight of God through what? Through faith. The only means by which any of us are ever declared righteous, doesn't matter if you're talking Old Testament or New Testament, it's always an issue of faith. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. This is the righteousness of God that's imputed to an individual on the basis of faith. Now, the object of our faith is always Christ. They were trusting in a Messiah that would come, that would come. We trust in a Christ who has come. But the, the picture here is you've got this old couple in the midst of the priestly line that's, that's corrupt, they've, they've, they've compromised, the nation's bleak and dark, and yet you've got this couple that says, we're going to continue to remain faithful in the hope that God will save us, that he'll send Messiah, 
to rescue us from this situation. And their, their genuine faith is affirmed through their blameless life. Not Again, not that they were perfect, but they were seeking to walk in accordance with God's word. And, and anytime there's genuine faith, it will, also, it will always be validated by changed life. This means you cannot come to know Christ and have his righteousness imputed to your account and not live differently. And that's the picture here. You've got a couple, they're trusting the hope of Messiah and their life is different. They're swimming upstream. They are living completely contrary to every context around them. What a powerful picture of us as believers in Jesus Christ, just clinging to the hope of Christ and we live differently and we swim against the current. And you know, if you read this passage and you, you, if you're trying, if you, if you read it as if for the very first time, because we kind of know how the story goes, but if you're reading it as if you're reading it for the first time, you would expect to see dark day, you got a couple swimming against the current, clinging to Christ, they're doing everything, they're walking blamelessly, and you would expect the very next verse to say, and they were blessed immeasurably. They had everything they could ever ask for, they had a house full of children and stuff and a legacy and all this stuff, but that's not what we see. In fact, you look at verse 7, what does it say? But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in, year, in years. Um, they had no child. And certainly, I, I, some of you, you you've gone through uh, the pain of, of infertility and uh, the, the few things more, more painful than that situation. And, and, and not to diminish its significance today, but certainly in this day, you know, to not have children for a woman in this day was a sign of reproach that, 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 that you had sinned or something was wrong with your life. Now, we look at Scripture. We know enough about Scripture. Yeah, I don't know about you, but uh, on the basis of Hannah with Samuel and, and uh, Isaac and, 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 and Abraham and Sarah, and now you read this, and, and every time you see a barren woman, you say, God's up to something. But for them, they, they saw this as a sign of God's reproach. Maybe we've messed up. Maybe we've done something wrong. And here, here's an important reminder. Listen to me today. You walk in faithfulness to God. You, you become a Christian. You place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. And you seek to walk according to his ways. It does not exempt you from pain in this world. In this world, Scripture says, you will have trouble. Faith in Christ and seeking to walk in his ways does not exempt you from the painful trials of life. And here's a couple that is seeking to walk according to Christ. They're blameless. They're counted righteousness on the, righteous on the base of faith. And yet they are experiencing one of the most painful things a couple in this world can ever face. The pain of infertility, of not having a child. Uh, but what do we know? And, and we look at this and we know that God is up to something and his no in this moment will be a yes that will come later. And God is going to answer their prayers and give them the desires of their heart in a way that's beyond what they could ever imagine, even though they can't see it at that moment. And yet that's often the way that trials are in our life, right? We, we go through trials in our life and some of you, you've walked with Christ long enough to have some really severe trials in your life that you didn't bring upon yourself. They just happened in the course of life and you would not wish them on your worst enemy, but today you wouldn't trade them for anything because you know of how they worked in your life to grow you and your faith and trust in God. And I truly believe that the pain of the, this childless situation in Zacharias and Elizabeth's life was preparation for the blessing that God was going to give them in the child that he had for them. God was up to something, even though they couldn't see it. And the beauty of this, as you see in the very next verse, it says in verse 9, uh, or verse 8, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before the Lord in the appointed order of his division, the beauty of this is, because here's the thing, when you go through pain in your life, it'll do one of two things to you. It'll either push you further away from God or it'll draw you close. 
And uh, the picture here of Zacharias and Elizabeth is even though we're in pain, we're still going to walk in faithfulness. We're just going to keep walking faithfully with the Lord. And so their, their, their faith and their walk with the Lord was not based on their circumstances, but a hope that God is good and his plan is best. And so he continues on in uh, verse 8 and, and 9, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. So here he is, the, 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 the priestly line in First Chronicles 24, the, the number of priests had gotten so large that they divided them up into 24 orders. And you were uh, uh, in one order or another. He's in the order of Abijah. It was the eighth order out of the 24. And you were assigned uh, two weeks out of the year. You would go and you'd serve for a week. You'd go back home. And then you have another week where you would go and serve. And so he just continues faithfully in his service. He's going to go and serve the Lord in the temple. Even though, man, about how hard must it have been? Because he feels like God's being painful to him. God won't answer his prayers. But he's going to continue to serve faithfully. And as he's serving there, they would come and they would serve for a week. And they would uh, divide up the responsibilities by casting lots. And again, we've seen this in 1 Samuel. Casting of lots is, is a way of God saying, this is my choice. Uh, because in the priestly service, there were some responsibilities that were of greater significance than others. And the highest, the highest responsibility that you could be given was the privilege of going in before the presence of the Lord and burning incense. And uh, the idea being that if they selected those responsibilities, that somebody might say that somebody was showing favoritism towards somebody. So God says, we're going to do it by casting lot because it's my choice. And on this occasion, God says to Zacharias, you're up, buddy. This is your turn. You're going to go in. And, and there were a lot of priests who never got this privilege in their entire life. And it was so sacred, you could only do it once. You could only do it one time. And the the lot falls to him, and he gets to go in. He gets this great privilege of going in before the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the, uh, at the hour of the incense burning. So he would go in. He'd offer incense. It was a sign of their prayers going up before God. And, and he was a representative of the nation. So the whole nation is out there because he's their representative. Remember, we look at these things, and it's kind of odd to us because we... Listen, this is a reminder of the great privilege that we have to enter into the presence of God anytime, at any moment through Jesus Christ. Don't, don't let that pass you by in this, that, that we get to enter into God's presence whenever. For them, you, this guy gets the privilege. He gets to go in before the presence of the Lord and, and, and talk with God and commune with God in a personal way. And so here he is. He gets this opportunity as a representative of the nation, and they're outside praying. And all of a sudden, in verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled. That's another one of these situations in Scripture. It's a huge understatement. He was scared to death. In fact, it says when he saw the angel, fear gripped him, um, which is the, the, the natural response of any individual when they stand in the presence of an angel. You'll see this with Mary. you see this with uh, the shepherds, they're all terrified. They're scared to death. One angel in the Old Testament kills 185,000 men. You stand in the presence of an angel, you're scared to death because that's the natural response of man when you stand in the presence of the divine. And so here he is, and this, this angel suddenly appears at the right hand of the altar, and he, he's overwhelmed with fear. And what does the angel say in verse 13? But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. So the, the angel Gabriel shows up and says, don't be afraid, for your petition has been heard. So the question is, though, what petition? Uh, now, the priestly office, if you went in and, and burned incense, your responsibility was to pray for the salvation of the people. 
your, your, your prayer was, come, Lord, come. Uh, ransom captive Israel, as we sing at Christmas time. That would have been his prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come, Messiah, come, save your people. But while that's his priestly responsibility, listen, any of us who, who is, a, is a good husband who loves our wives and any guy who would be going through a situation like this, you get one opportunity. And again, we, we, this is odd for us because we, we can just go to God anytime we want, enter into his presence by means of the Holy Spirit and work of Christ. He gets kind of one opportunity to go in before God. Do you not think in this one opportunity, even though he knows his, his official responsibility is to pray for the nation, do you not think that he's not also saying, God, would you give us a child? And uh, so the, the, there's a lot of the commentators kind of conjecture. In fact, I was looking in both, they're on both sides of the street, and I, I think it's not an either or. I think it's a both and. I think here he is in the presence of God. He says, here's my opportunity. I'm going to take it. I'm going to ask God for this child. I'm going to pray for the nation. And God is going to re- grant his request. God is going to give Zacharias a son. But he's not just going to give him a son. He's also going to answer the secondary request, which would have been the salvation of the people. Because through this son is an indication that I'm about to send Messiah. He's the forerunner. It's a picture of, you, you ever pray a prayer and, and it just seems like God's not coming through in the time or the way. But when, when, when God finally does come through, you realize he gave you a whole lot more than you bargained for. <laughs> Uh, I look back on so many prayers when my prayers were like this, and they weren't coming through in the time that I wanted. And then when God did, did answer, it was like this. And you're like, oh, my goodness, God, you had so much more in store for me than I ever th- thought possible. And so God says, uh, Gabriel says, we, your, your petition has been heard, and, and you're, you're going to have a son. And in verse 14, you will have joy. You're going to have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. This isn't just going to be about you Zacharias is not just going to be about Elizabeth. This is going to be about the nation, many people, not just the nation, but the world. Verse 15, why? For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. This is going to be a holy man. This is going to be a man who's totally dedicated unto the Lord. He's going to be great in the sight of God, not great in the sight of the world. This is going to be a holy man who's great in the sight of God and filled with the Spirit, even while yet in the womb. This is going to be a man who's controlled completely by the Spirit of God. In fact, as I was reading one of the commentaries, it demonstrates the freedom of the Spirit's work to work in anybody's life, even from the womb. And so here is the spirit working, and in verse 16, he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, meaning that they had turned away from God, as was the habit of the nation of Israel, to turn away, to get distracted, to go astray. And this person is going to turn the hearts of the people back. He's going to have a message, as we'll see in John's life, he's going to have a message of repentance. Uh, Part of the salvation gospel message is often left out, but there is no salvation apart from repentance. But that's going to be the primary message of John the Baptist. Repent, turn from your sin, and turn back to God. And then in verse 17, it's he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And this is where I think Zacharias' ears perked up. You're kidding me, because he certainly knew the prophecy of Malachi. He'll, He'll... uh, come in the, the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready the, the uh, people prepared for the Lord. 
So he's gonna bring about revival in this nation. The, the hearts of the people are gonna turn back to God and the hearts of the fathers are gonna turn back towards the children because for the people of Israel, at the heart of the gospel message is fathers fulfilling uh, their calling as parents to disciple their children, to pass along their faith to another generation, which Israel always had a hard time doing. It was interesting to me. I probably spent more time on this than I should. But the primary work of, of John the Baptist as a forerunner will be not just to turn the hearts of the people back to God, but turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. And uh, it was just this reminder to me that in our lives, when we seek the holiness of God, when God does a work in our lives, uh, it ought to primarily uh, demonstrate itself in the home. Uh, listen, men, it, it doesn't matter how many Bible studies you go to or how much scripture you know. If you can't love your wife in a kind and gentle way like Christ loved the church, it doesn't matter a lick. The true holiness, the holiness that demonstrates itself in the home. And so here, this man's gonna come before the Lord. He, he's gonna prepare the way. He's gonna get their hearts ready for the arrival of Messiah, arrival of the Christ. Verse 18 how is Zacharias going to respond? This man who's been faithful, this man who's done all these acts of service. In fact, all of his life has really been a prayer for this moment, whether for his personal life, or the uh, coming of a child in his own life, or the coming of Messiah. All of his life has led to this moment, and yet what is his response in verse 18? Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? How can I have certainty about this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is a advanced in years. In other words, we're old, and we're beyond the childbearing years. It's a response of unbelief. In fact, it's interesting because he's going to ask for certainty, and you find out very quickly uh, the angel's going to say, I'm Gabriel, and uh, because you would not believe, you're just going to shut your mouth for a while. And, and, and God responds pretty harshly to Zacharias. And you kind of look at this and you say, goodness, because there's other times in Scripture where people ask for a sign in some way, and God's very kind towards them. You think of Gideon. You, you, I mean, even Mary, to some extent, you looked at last week, but how shall this be? Mary, though, doesn't question that it will be done, just the way in which it will be done. She has no doubt, but, but here is Zacharias, and you wonder, why in the world is God so harsh to Zacharias? And here's what I believe, a little bit of conjecture, but here's what I believe. Because in almost in every other instance where a person is called upon to place their faith in a promise of God, uh, that the messenger is a person, it's a human. And so they're called to question a human voice, but in this way, it's Gabriel, it's the voice of a visible angel in the presence of God. I mean, you want certainty, Zacharias? What more do you need than the presence of Gabriel in the presence of God? You've got all you need. This is not a matter of intellect. This is not a matter of having more knowledge. This is an issue of unbelief. And Zacharias, you are culpable. And since you will not believe it, guess what? You're not going to talk about it. And, you know, I, I, even as I was reading that, I think of so many people in their life, they say, well, I believe in Christ, I believe in this, if God showed up and spoke to me. Well, listen, Zacharias got the presence of Gabriel and the presence of God, and it wasn't enough for him. It's not about more information. 
Well, listen, if you read God's word, God has given us all the information we need. You read, the, the more I read scripture, the more I stand in awe of God, the God who knows the end at the beginning. He knows the end before the beginning, and he predicts it with absolute certainty. In fact, you read Psalm 22, it told us that Christ soldiers would gamble for his possessions. It told us that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It told us that he would be born a virgin. It told us he'd be born in Bethlehem. It told us that he would be assigned uh, a grave with the wicked, yet he would be a rich, with the rich men. And, and we see all these things come to perfect fulfillment. But what is the greatest miracle that gives us certainty about the message of Jesus Christ? It's the resurrection. That there's this individual who came physically lived, who is God, born of a virgin, lived a life we couldn't, died the death we should have, was placed in a physical tomb, and we can't find his body. I mean, listen, you don't need more information. The issue is, will you believe what God has presented for you? And the world tells us, oh boy, you're gullible if you believe that Christianity. And that's the message of the world. The word of God tells you you're not gullible. It tells you you're culpable if you do not believe it. Because you have all you need. The issue is, will you believe? Zacharias, the issue is, he won't believe. And so he goes mute for a period of time. And then you'll see, look on, it says, uh, the angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. Isn't that awesome? And Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. You know who I am? You know who you're talking to right here? And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. In verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. This to me is the funniest part of the story because at the end of this, when the, the, the priest would go in and burn incense and offer up his prayers before God, he would come. It's 9, 9 a.m. in the morning. He'd go in for a period of time and he'd come back out uh, somewhere around an hour. Uh, he'd come back out and he'd recite the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you, keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you, give you peace. He would come out and make that declaration. And so they're wondering, he's probably there a little longer, who knows, maybe an hour, I don't, maybe two hours, but they were waiting around, what's going on? And then he finally comes out there anticipating him making this great declaration of the blessing. And he comes out and he looks at him and he goes, he got nothing. I mean, you talk about a funny moment in the story. What happened to this guy in there? And they kind of get... Uh, in fact, Scripture, it seems to indicate they make signs to him and he makes signs to them, which tells us not only could he not speak, but there's a great likelihood that he couldn't hear either. Um, and so here he is, and they, they recognize at least to some extent, which is so interesting because I think about this from a husband's stand, standpoint. First of all, you got selected to go in and burn incense before the Lord. Um, if you get that privilege... Men, you get a new responsibility at work or a great job promotion. Who's the first person you want to call? You can call your wife. Well, he gets this great privilege. Not only does he get that great privilege, he's gotten to see Gabriel, and Gabriel's told him he's going to have a son, which him and his wife have been praying for for a very long time. What is the first thing he wants to do? I want to go home and tell my wife. Yeah, he can't talk. You talk about torture to have the greatest news ever that you're going to have a baby and Messiah's coming and you can't tell a soul. In fact, there's some of the commentators that believe this is prophetic of the nation of Israel because the gospel will come to the Jew first and the Jews will reject Jesus and God will turn away from them and go to the Gentile. And for the most part, Israel today is mute. But will they one day speak? We studied about in Revelation. There's going to be 144,000 
Jewish Billy Grahams, and they're going to preach the gospel one day. But here we see uh, Zacharias. He doesn't believe. He goes mute, can't talk about it. In verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. It's interesting, she keeps herself in seclusion for five months. Why in the world does she keep herself in seclusion for five months? I, I, again, I have to conjecture here a little bit, but I love doing this, just kind of put myself in the position of the people in the story. And I, I think there's a good bit of Elizabeth that knows that if she goes public with this, again, we don't know how old she is, but clearly scripture indicates that she's beyond childbearing years. So you, can you imagine, I don't know, let's just say she's 60, and she shows up at the doctor's office and says, I'm here for prenatal care. For your granddaughter? No, 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 for me. Well, listen, we have the psychiatric ward that you really need to check out. I mean, I think she knows how ridiculous this is going to sound if I go tell people I'm going to have a child. And she waits five months because at five months, listen, at five months, she's showing and it will be proof positive. This is what the Lord has done. Look at what God has done to take away my disgrace to grant me this child. I also think those that uh, just putting myself in their shoes, many of you have gone through issues of fertility and you, if you've had miscarriages, there's a reluctance. Even when you do become pregnant, there's a reluctance to share the news. Why? Because you're afraid it might not come to fruition. And maybe there was that aspect in Elizabeth. I don't know, but these are real people just struggling to trusting God when God is doing something great in their lives beyond what they can imagine. So what do we take away from this? What, 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 do we, what do we glean from this that we apply from our lives? What difference does this make tomorrow when we go back out in the world? Well, number one, know this today. Be encouraged today. No matter how dark the days might, be, might seem, no matter how difficult the situation, no matter how contrary the world is, God is still at work Make no mistake about it. He is at work today as much as he has ever been at work. And God delights in using those who will simply be faithful. Listen, you don't have to be some great politician. You don't have to be some incredibly significant person at your workplace. You don't have to be a preacher or a pastor. God delights in using humble, ordinary people who love him and are seeking to walk with him, even in the midst of their pain. God delights in using those people for his great purposes. Listen, God is at work today. Be faithful to him. Secondly, know this today. There's a reminder here. There's a beautiful reminder here that, that pain and trials are not contrary to our faith in Christ. They're a part of our walk with Christ. We face pain and difficulty in this world, some of which we bring upon ourselves, but so much of which we just happens that we just, blessed are you, when you encounter various trials, James says, we just kind of walk into them as a product of this fallen world. And listen to me, Dave, if you're in a place of pain, do not allow that pain to push you away from God, but run towards God, cling to God. There's a reminder here that God is good. His way is best even when you can't understand it. Even when God is saying no to you today in whatever trial you're facing. Listen, it could be preparation for something that's beyond your imagination tomorrow. But you've got to trust this, that God is good and his plan is best. And he loves giving his children good gifts. 
You know, we come to this Christmas season, I don't know about you as a parent, I love giving my boys gifts. Faith's better at it than me. She makes sure we give our kids cool gifts and we love, we delight in giving them gifts. You know what it hit me this week? If I, as a sinful dad, love giving good gifts to my children, how much more does God, our Heavenly Father, delight in giving good gifts to us? But what do we know as parents? Sometimes we have to say no because there's something better that we want to give them. And maybe God's no is, a, is not a no forever, but I have something better for you down the road. And then the final point of this is a good reminder that God always remembers his promises. God always remembers his promise. The promise that he had made to the people of Israel is that I am coming, I will come, just as I said. And there's 400 years of silence and the people probably, well, maybe he's forgotten. Maybe it won't come to fruition. Listen, God always remembers his promises and just as assuredly as he came the first time, he is coming again. God has promised, John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you Don't you love that about Jesus? If it weren't true, I'd have told you it weren't true. It's true. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, there you may be also. Boy, do we not live in a day where people start looking at us and say, you guys are crazy. The Lord hadn't come. He's not coming back. And what do we know? We know God is always faithful to his promise. In fact, what does it say in Peter? The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Do you know what? God, the reason Christ might not have returned is because he's waiting today for you to trust him. That's the God we serve. He's not slow. He's patient. He desires none to perish, but all to come to repentance and faith. God always keeps his promises. So if you're here, maybe today you're watching and you don't know Christ and you're saying, what in the world? Uh, I was reminded this week as I was preparing of the, the girl who had an uncle. She'd been inviting him to church for quite some time. He never said he would go. Then around Christmas time, she invited him again. He said, all right, you know, I'll go, appease you. So she's praying her pastor's going to preach this great message on the gospel, maybe John three sixteen. She shows up on that Sunday and he's preaching on the genealogy of Jesus. And she's thinking, oh, no, my uncle's never going to come to faith in Christ. Said it was the most boring sermon she had ever heard. Uncle goes home that night. She gets a call the next day from her uncle. And her uncle says, I wanted you to know that last night I trusted in Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. She said, what in the world? That was the worst sermon I've ever heard. He said, yeah, but that preacher kept talking about the genealogy and these people in the genealogy of Jesus. And he said, and they died, and then he died, and then he died. And that phrase kept ringing in my mind, and it was a reminder of my own morality and my own sinfulness and my lack of assurance about salvation and where I'll go when I die. And God convicted me of my sin, and I began to pick up the Bible and read about that genealogy and continue on and read about Christ who came. And I trusted in Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Listen, some of you may have come to church today for the very first time, maybe a guest. It's been a long time since you've been to church, and you're thinking, goodness, Zacharias and Elizabeth, what does this have to do with me? Listen to me, it has everything to do with you. It's a reminder that God loves you. He came for you, and you will find Jesus if you seek him, because the good news is he's been seeking you. 
You know, that's the good, I was reading next week, we'll look at the Magnificat, Mary's song, and she says, because the Lord has done great things for me. The gospel never really becomes impactful in our lives until it becomes personal. That God so loved the world, but God also loved you individually. And he came for you that you might know him and have a relationship with him and have the certainty of heaven. Do you have that certainty today? And if you know him today, no matter where you might be, stay faithful. Because God always keeps his promises. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that speaks so plainly and relevantly into our lives today. And God, I pray for anybody in the room today that may not know you. God, I pray somehow by your word and by your spirit, you've spoken to their hearts to reveal the depth of their own sin and their need of a savior, Jesus Christ. There's no doubt There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. If there's somebody here today that knows the depth of their sin, knows they need salvation, I pray that they would turn to Christ and know his salvation today. They would cling to him and know the hope of Christ, the joy of Christ, the joy of freedom and forgiveness and the certainty of heaven. For those of us that do know you, God, help us to stay faithful. God, we exist in a culture that is completely adverse to the things of Christ. God, help us, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, to swim upstream, to continue to cling to the hope of Christ, no matter how dark the days, no matter how painful the circumstances of life might be. May we just cling to you, knowing that even in the pain of our life, one day, one day our faith will become sight. One day you'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. How do we know it's true? Because you always keep your promises. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.